Thank you for attending our first expert panel discussion, and it's connecting the dots between shelter and general practice anesthesia. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez. I'm U.S. Director of Technical Services at Jurox Animal Health, and I will be moderating the discussion with our panelists. Our panelists have dedicated their veterinary careers to providing care and second chances to the nation's homeless pet population, and they will share their thoughts on anesthetic drugs, protocols, and best practices and how these are shaped by the unique challenges associated with shelter medicine. And we hope you will benefit from our discussion of how successful, compassionate, and efficient veterinary anesthesia can be performed in a high volume setting. And we hope to provide you with some tips and tricks that will be useful to shelter and private hospital teams. So let's meet our panelists. Dr. Erin Katribe is the Medical Director of Best Friends Animal Society. In this role, she provides medical guidance to Best Friends Life Saving Centers and provides consultative support to partner shelters across the U.S. Dr. Katribe earned her DVM degree from Texas A&M University in 2009. Already knowing that her future was in shelter medicine and animal welfare, initially she practiced full-time emergency and critical care and performed contract work in high-quality, high-volume spay, neuter, and local shelters before joining Best Friends in 2017. Tribe earned her master's degree in shelter medicine through the University of Florida in 2017. And she also provides um, contract services for the Humane Society of the United States Rural Area Veterinary Services Program as a field clinic veterinarian, focusing on access to care in underserved communities. And she currently serves on the board of directors for the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. Dr. Katribe is, is passionate about teaching future generations about shelter medicine and animal services. Dr. Emily McCobb is a board certified specialist in anesthesia and analgesia. She is co-section head for community medicine and director of the Luke and Lily Lerner Spay and Neuter Clinic at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Dr. McCobb works to support community programs at the Cummings School and assisted in opening the Tufts at Tech Community Veterinary Clinic. Dr. McCobb mentors veterinary and graduate students for clinical work and for animal welfare related research projects. Dr. Sadie Scott is the medical director and chief veterinarian at Kansas City Pet Project, one of the largest open admission shelters to reach no-kill status in the US. She's also the proud owner of Family Pet Hospital in Shawnee, Kansas. During her time at a specialty and emergency practice in Kansas City, she worked closely with a local shelter, sparking her passion and caring for homeless pets. Being actively involved in both shelter and general practice medicine, Dr. Scott has insight into the unique experiences of both environments. And I welcome to our panelists. I'm gonna direct our questions to one of our panelists first, and then ask our other panelists to add in their insights and opinions. Our goal is to have each of our panelists have input for each of our questions. Our first question I'm going to ask Dr. McCobb, what is a day in the life like practicing shelter medicine? <laughs> um, it's a funny question for me because I don't work in the shelter, but I guess I'll use it in an opportunity just to say that I work in a community medicine clinic which provides services to shelter animals. So it's a mix of high quality, high volume spay neuter and anesthesia protocols for that, where you're dealing with batches of animals to shelter animals that have special needs for dental care, other non spay neuter surgery. So I'm hoping we'll address both of those type of scenarios today. Awesome. Dr. Katribe, can you tell us what a day in the life for you is like? One of the things that I think is really awesome about shelter medicine is it's this 
unique combination of managing both the individual pet and the health of the overall population. And so things like infectious disease or epidemiology are things that I find fascinating. And so I get to do a lot of that in the shelter. Definitely a lot of, of surgery, mostly spay neuter, but sometimes other stuff. And then one of the exciting recent shifts that I like is being able to do more community outreach and really exploring access to care and, and finding ways for people and pets to stay together so they don't even come into the shelter in the first place. Oh, that's awesome. All right, Dr. Scott, what is your day like? So a day uh, in the shelter for me, and I work in the shelter, we like to think it's controlled chaos, but really there's very little control. It is just a constant movement of all kinds of medicine at the same time. And we also have our municipal contract for animal control. So we're not just doing herd health and individual health, but we're also managing emergencies and traumas at the same time and building on a new model of social services for our community. So our shelter um, is quite busy and, as I mentioned, a bit chaotic. <laughs> and that's true for all of us. All right, so the next, the next question, and I think most of y'all will have um, some experience with this, but how does the shelter clinic environment differ from general practice? Maybe, Dr. Scott, since you are in both worlds simultaneously every day, yeah. let us know what that is like. Yeah, so I think the, the biggest or I guess low-hanging fruit in terms of differences would be the volume of animals that we see in the shelter. Currently, I have over a thousand animals in foster care that we're managing, over 300 in the shelter, and then several hundred at any given time out of post-adopt. And again, those traumas that we don't know are coming. The low-hanging fruit is the, the volume, the management of numbers, but other things that are different. Dr. Katribe mentioned it's a lot of herd health, which you don't really practice that in private practice so much, but in the shelter, that's so important, understanding herd health and, and that management. The third piece that I think is a major difference as well is the decision-making process. So in private practice, we can rely on our owners to make the decisions for the pets as long as we're educating them appropriately, whereas in the shelter, that burden falls on the veterinarians. And so that is a, a major difference as well. And also the benefit to that is you're only limited in shelter by your own skill or by your team skills. So you can do whatever spectrum of medicine that you're able to do. And I think that's really unique and interesting and fun and challenging in shelter medicine. And then the fourth point that I'd like to make is the collaboration that you get in shelter medicine. So in my private practice, the most veterinarians I'm ever gonna have on staff currently is two, but in the shelter I have 10. So we can collaborate on a level that in private practice, we don't really have that ability so much. Yeah, that's awesome. Dr. McCobb, I know you have an upstairs-downstairs situation where you work, so tell us what that is like. I guess the things that stand out to me about differences are drug availability, and certainly we're all challenged by drug availability these days, but in the shelter or community clinic environment, we're often having more streamlined set of tools, so we want to think carefully about what we have on hand, and that's certainly different, at least in a teaching setting. And then the other is making plans for animals to have good analgesia, even if we can't be with them 24-7. So just really thinking about like preventative analgesia and techniques that we can use if we're not there giving them treatments in the middle of the night so that we can still provide really high quality care in the shelter or in a community setting where they're going back with the owner that same day. Awesome. Dr. Katrib, anything to add? 
Yeah, sure. So just to echo what Dr. Scott said, because of that sheer volume, and again, that unpredictability sometimes, and certainly I think some general practices are, are like that. In a lot of ways, a lot of days for me feel more like when I did do emergency practice, and it's just like trauma after trauma rolling in. So definitely a lot of that. And what comes from that, depending on where you're at and how many veterinarians you do have on staff, it's I rely so much on my technicians to be my eyes, my ears, and oftentimes my hands when it comes to triaging cases or getting stuff going when I'm not available just because I'm juggling so much. I think one other difference that I want to call out is I have a lot fewer conversations with public folks. We don't have the traditional client and depending on the setting, but a lot fewer of that. But instead I'm educating the entire shelter staff so they can recognize and learn about diseases and learn about disease prevention. And so they can share that knowledge too directly with the community since they're doing more of that interaction. Our next question, we'll start with Dr. Scott. And what do you think is the, is the biggest challenge that shelters face? Oh, I think the biggest challenge that I've experienced in the shelters that I've managed is staffing. And that's not unique to shelters. We all know that there's difficulty in hiring veterinarians and registered veterinary technicians. And unfortunately, in our shelters, we're, we tend to not be able to pay as much. So staffing is a huge issue across the board, at least here in my region. And then resource management for 501c3, a major challenge as well, and something we have to manage in each case that we deal with too. And then I would say the last thing for us is rapidly changing goals in the industry. And that's a moving target, and that's also a challenge. Dr. Katrai, what, what is your biggest challenge? Yeah, I think certainly even in any environment running a nonprofit, there's obviously resource restrictions, but certainly the financial uncertainty that's come with COVID for, for businesses too, but definitely for nonprofits given the economic crisis and knowing too that we're going to be looking at a housing crisis and, and how is that going to affect shelters? So, so just like Dr. Scott said, lots of certainly things that existed before, but have been um, exaggerated by COVID and it could potentially get a lot worse for us. I agree too, certainly staffing, not unique to shelters, but definitely something that we face all the time. I, we face it too here. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. McCall? I interpreted this question in terms of challenges for anesthesia in the shelter practice. So I was going to say spectrum of care, which actually relates really nicely to what you guys said in that with those restricted resources and staffing and everything else that we have to deal with, how can we be confident that we're providing high quality surgical and anesthetic care in that environment? And how can we offer more options to these animals within an acceptable spectrum of care? So I think that is a new and actually really exciting challenge. So just to follow up on that, what types of surgical or anesthetic procedures, Dr. McCobb, do you perform for the pets in your care? For example, something like a PU surgery, right? That's a life-saving procedure that we can offer a shelter animal or a privately owned animal to keep them alive and with their people. But if you were to talk to my surgeons that work upstairs, they're going to say that's the domain of a surgeon. But I think that many shelter veterinarians perform that surgery extremely successful and we're increasingly growing our data. That is true. And we can actually provide really good anesthetic and analgesic care to that animal and save its life. So the idea that we have these kind of options, but also things like amputations and nucleations, a lot of simple surgeries, even of course, pyometra surgeries we're all dealing with, but even things like foreign bodies that for a while maybe were the domain of the specialist. If it comes down to a euthanasia decision, that's going to be performed by the shelter or community veterinarian. And I think we just need to do more to get our profession on board with the fact that we can do an excellent job with these cases and the results are really good. 
That's great. So, so to follow up on that, Dr. Scott, do you work with other facilities or practices to help manage your surgical list, your patients that you may not be able to do there at the, at the shelter? Yeah, we try not to. We certainly can <laughs> if we need to. Sorry. <laughs> we, we can. We have that option. But again, it's resource management. And so what I've chosen to do is hire some experienced shelter veterinarians that really have a passion for surgery. And because it's typically the surgeries in which we need extra help with. And up to this point, I have really great experienced surgeons that are willing to take on new challenges. And the only thing that we're not doing currently are fracture repairs. Those we'll send out, but everything else we do in-house. Dr. Katribe, what does your surgical caseload, anesthetic caseload look like? Yeah, so lots of the same, a lot of similarities. Certainly I would add on just lots of you know, dealing with things post-trauma. Depending on, as we've talked about, I have my feet in two worlds right now. So I have the best friends facilities that are pretty well resourced as far as nonprofits go. And then I'm actually working directly in a shelter in South Texas that is not particularly well resourced. And so our options are very different. At best friends, we certainly can refer stuff out. We, just like Dr. Scott, we try not to, right? We try to tackle anything in health that we can, <laughs> including even minor fracture repairs. But if we really think that the specialist is the best option, then we'll pursue that. But certainly down here, unfortunately, we're just not at a point where we have that to even consider, as well as we're geographically isolated. And so it gets even harder. But I love surgery. And so I'm one of those shelter vets that I think it's really exciting to try new things. And when you are the only option versus potential euthanasia, you've exhausted any rescue options. Nobody wants to, to pull an animal. If you're the last shot, like, of course I'm going to try. Let's dive into anesthesia specifically in the shelter setting. So Dr. Katribe, is there a general shelter protocol that you have for anesthesia and what does that look like? I think there, I wouldn't say there's a single shelter protocol for all shelters, but there's definitely some similarities and, and I certainly have my favorite one or ones. Mm -hmm. um, some of the similarities that, that I think that, that we see are choosing a single IM injection that's a cocktail used for induction and potentially also for pain control. I think it's really, it's stress reducing for cats. I think it's a time saver for dogs and multimodal anesthesia. So definitely using opioids and NSAIDs on those patients. And all the filters that I work in do maintain animals on isofluorine. My personal go-to filter protocol these days is, is telozole, butorphanol, and dexmedetomidine for cat and for dogs in a lot of cases. Excellent. So what does Dr. Scott, what does your protocols look like? Yeah, so we use TT Dex as well. And I wish I had some romantic story about why that was chosen. But quite honestly, when I was brought into the shelter uh, world, the, that's what my surgeons were using. And I trusted them and learned that protocol. I truly believe whatever your surgeons are accustomed to is the safest protocol. <clears throat> so I did not reinvent the wheel and I've learned that protocol in all three shelters that I've managed. That's the one that we choose. Perfect. Dr. McCobb, do you do use something different? Yeah, here's where I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. And I think it's really important to distinguish between our protocols and these cocktails that we use for high quality, high volume spay neuter. And there's a variety of them and there's a ton of evidence behind them. They're safe, they're effective, they've been used all over the country and everyone's got their preferences. And there's factors that go into, in including speed of surgeon, the caseload and comfort level, like they're saying. And so I think there's a variety of options and I'm strongly support them. Them. 
But when we're talking about the non-spay-neuter surgery, we want to make a distinction because very often those animals may not be great candidates for those healthy animal cocktail protocols. And so that's where it's like the new frontier in the shelter because a lot of this community medicine stuff is newer. So my one of my key messages today is really consider whether that animal is a good candidate for your go-to protocol. In some cases they are. They're a young, healthy animal, there's an orthopedic issue, or it's something where they're very stable. But in many cases, they're older or challenged in some other way. And that's when we may have to feel more like a general practice and have a little bit of a customized approach. And that's a good point. And so let me ask Dr. Katrai, what, what happens when you get a more compromised, debilitated patient, and maybe that IM cocktail isn't most appropriate for that patient? What's then um, the next step for you? Just like Dr. McCobb said, and I, I appreciate you bringing up that distinction because it is important. Certainly our go-tos, we do shift to something that looks more like private practice using things like propofol, even alfaxalone, depending on the, the environment that I'm working in and the availability. When we have those critical patients, it, we do, we shift to thinking more along those, those lines rather than that high volume setting and everything that goes along with that too, things like IV fluids during surgery that we don't typically do during high quality, high volume spay neuter. So yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought that up. That's great. Dr. Scott, what, what's your alternative protocols for some of these more compromised patients? I th again, it's going to depend on case and surgeon and what they're comfortable with, but we do have a variety of options both in the shelter and in the private practice to be able to modify our protocol based on uh, the patient's stability. Yeah. So let's um, get into some of these questions that we have that are very anesthesia-specific. We have one question about cutting into tracheal tubes for each patient. Is that recommended? Dr. McCobb has already mentioned that, yes, it's fine to do. And I don't know, with, with you, when you cut the tube, sometimes if you do it after the fact, after they're intubated, you can struggle to get that adapter on there. So sometimes it's better to pre-measure and pre-cut than yeah. to find out your tube's way too long after the fact and then struggle to get that adapter in and you have to pinch it off. And, may not and never throw thing. away the adapters from your little tubes because that's a trick too. If you're having trouble getting it back in, just grab one from a smaller tube and it'll usually fit. Yeah, or I grab my hemostats and stretch it out a little bit before sticking that adapter back in. So we all have these little tips and tricks. <laughs> and another question is, can TDDEX be made with the Jerox? Tealazole, what that's referring to, for those that are unaware, we do uh, market and sell a tylenamine zolazepam combination, generic equivalent of Tealazole, and that's Zolatil. And so the question is, can you use that product to make your cocktail? And Dr. McCobb has already answered yes. I would say um, absolutely you can. It is considered off-label, but you absolutely can use it the same as you would the, uh, the Tealazole product. Dr. Scott, what do you think about temperature monitoring? I think it's an absolute must. It's required in both of my clinics. Yes. And how required. best do you maintain heat in your patients? What sort of external warming devices do you have, at, at, say, in the shelter setting? In the shelter, we have uh, surgery tables that heat up. And our speed and the shelter really helps to keep our patients safer and warmer. What I do see in private practice is those surgeries taking much longer. And so in private practice, we use a bear hugger as well. That's great. Yeah, I love those bear huggers. How else, um, Dr. Katribe, what, what do you do to keep your patients warm? 
Yeah, just like Dr. Scott said, we, when in spay-neuter, I think we deal with hypothermia a lot less, which is great, but because we also deal with a lot of pediatric surgeries, it becomes so important. I like the circulating water blankets, and we do also have bear huggers, a smaller number of them, but um, we choose our patients, um, but but usually for post-op care, we'll get the bear hugger out. All right, I'll I'll ask Dr. McCobb the next question. What minimal parameters do you like or feel you should be monitored for your anesthetized patients? Asking about what sort of equipment the shelter setting should have and what minimal information they should gather from their patients. Yeah, so ACVA monitoring guidelines say that we have to monitor temperature, we have to monitor patient depth, we have to monitor cardiovascular status, and we have to monitor respiratory status. So that's what we're required to monitor. The hard part is when your surgery is five minutes, how can we do ACVA monitoring in an HQHV environment? And we do adapt that. So for example, blood pressure monitoring, my rule of thumb is if the procedure is going to be longer than 30 minutes, that's when I will employ blood pressure monitoring. I think a pulse ox is pretty much of a must monitor on any case that meets a lot of those boxes. So even if it's just a five-minute procedure in HQHV, we're still meeting those ACVA recommendations. The one part that we really deviate is we're not writing it down as often as ACVA says. They say we should be writing it down. We should be looking at it every five minutes and writing it down every 10 minutes. Again, if it's a five-minute procedure, we're probably not going to be writing it down, but we're still monitoring it. I always recommend a pulse ox as your basic starting point, and then ideally you would also have capnography and all the other things, but at least a pulse ox, in my mind, is essential. Great. Dr. Kajrad, any other monitoring advice that you have? Yeah, exactly what Dr. McCobb said. I think one of the things I think about is as monitors and, and technology becomes a little bit less expensive, will the opportunity for some of that automatic recording to advance this stuff? Because we do exactly the same thing. We're monitoring much more frequently than every five minutes, but we just don't have the time to write it down. So I, I wonder if that's something that we might see in the future. The only other piece of equipment that I'd add is the, the little the respiratory monitors that make the chirping noise so you can mm-hmm. hear when your patients are breathing or not. And frequently we do have multiple patients in various stages of anesthesia at a time. So I'll be doing surgery on one and and the next one is ready. And so it, it's helpful for me and the technician to, to just be able to hear without having to have you know a visual on them that they are breathing. Oh, that's a great point. I love the apneustic monitors in the shelter. Love those so much. For the last shelter I was at, we had multimodal for the vet students and the apneustics for just the veterinarians. In private practice, the animals are hooked up to everything. We, whatever we can monitor, we are, and we are writing it down uh, every five minutes. Unfortunately, in the shelter, when I have 65 surgeries a day and two technicians and two vets, documenting just doesn't happen, like the other lady said. But we do our best to monitor as much as possible. But I do love those apneustics, and they're, they're fairly inexpensive as well. Oh, that's great. And then another, another equipment question, and then we'll move on to our line of questioning. Anesthesia circuits, different types of circuits for pediatric versus adult patients. Dr. McCobb, you want to start us off? <laughs> Do you have any firm guidelines yeah. on when you use one versus the other, non-rebreathing I, versus rebreathing? I get this question every time I speak, and I th- actually think it really has a lot to do with where you went to vet school. <laughs> I use pretty general requirements because I don't actually think it matters very much. So for me, any Anything in the 
three to five kilo range or lower is when I'm going to start thinking about a non-rebreather. A lot of people love the F circuits, but that's really more of just a preference. There's no real reason to really use them or not use them. You will use much more oxygen and anesthesia if you use a non-rebreather circuit because of the high fresh gas flow rate. So in my mind, it's a very expensive way to go. So I tend to prefer standard circuits and just modifying the size of the breathing tubes and bag size for the smaller patients. But once you get really below three kilos, I think most people agree that you need to use a non-rebreather. Yeah. So Dr. Katribe, what are your breathing circuits? Yes. Sure. Exactly what Dr. McCobb was saying. For those really small guys, the non-rebreathers, but for the most part, we stick with the F circuits and, and change that size of that tubing as well as the bags for the patient. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. And I'm just looking at the list of questions now. Do any of you all use Noceta for post-operative analgesia? And Noceta, for those who are not familiar, is our liposomal bupivacaine that is labeled for kind of infiltrative administration for long-term analgesia. So who's using Noceta? I see Dr. McCobb nodded her head. Yeah, it's funny that question came up because just this morning, my resident presented a research project that we just completed and with our junior spay dogs. So we had almost 100 dogs in the Noceta group and 100 dogs in the Bupivacaine group and no difference in the slight difference in the Noceta group in the pain scores. But what was really interesting was that we found that we saved 453 mils of buprenorphine with a cost savings of $3,000. And that was before we knew that we could keep the Noceta for longer. And also this was with student incisions. So I think the incision length in HQHB would mean that you could use these bottles a long time. So we're really excited about that because of course the biggest barrier to using Noceta in shelter community medicine practice is the cost. You're still looking at I think close to the client cost is close to $200 for the administration, which is not in our wheelhouse. But if you can actually not have to use any buprenorphine in a shelter setting, it could actually be cost effective, especially if you can keep an open bottle for four days and split it between a bunch of cases. So it's hot off the presses. We're super excited. We haven't even finished like the fancy statistics that we need to do. But I think that the cost is going to come down and the applicability is going to come down. And we're going to start to see people using it in community practice as well, because it gives you 72 hours of pretty good pain relief. Absolutely. Anyone else using Noceta yet? Or how about local blocks in general? Dr. Kutrava, you local block. Yeah, I've used local blocks in different situations. So usually it is just bupivacaine. More often testicular blocks than on the space, but definitely I've used it in some settings and, and I like to do it if, if I can. Dr. Scott? We are not yet using it, but it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> are you using Noceta incision only or Dr. McCobb or also IP? We are using it, not IP, we're just infiltrating it into the tissue planes along the incision is recommended, but off-label, our surgeons are putting in every incision, like every incision they're getting it, which I think if you go, I think that's a big difference between academia and um, private practice and certainly shelter practices just due to the cost, it hasn't really taken off, but in academia, people are using it a lot and in all different species and having no complications and very good opioid sparing effects. All right. Let's talk a little more about um, drug protocols. I know IM combos tend to be because of logistics and efficiency, what most of you all use. Where do you think IV induction has a place in shelters and what would need to happen to make that more of a standard? I'm not even sure how often you all place IV catheters for every patient and how would that fit in? Dr. Scott, let's start with you. 
Yeah, so we're doing IV catheters with our specials procedures. We will not do them on just routine spays and neuters. And just time and volume prevents us from doing so. But in all of our specials, they're getting IV catheter and IV induction. Awesome. Dr. Katron? Yeah, we have a fairly similar approach. If it's anything that's not young, healthy, sh relatively short procedure, we will put a catheter in, um, do some sort of, whether it's propofol or I, I will say I have in some high volume settings for dogs done ketamine Valium as an IV injection, usually without a catheter. So you have to have an appropriate pre-medication on board and skilled technicians for that to, <laughs> to still, for the flow to still move. When we compared that protocol for dogs with the TTD though, the, we did the same number of animals and we cut 30 minutes to an hour off the day when we went to the IM cocktail. And so I think it's certainly very, there's a lot of factors there, but I do think that certainly is cheaper than using TT decks on some of the bigger dogs. And it certainly can have a place if your setting allows for it. We have a question about dexmedetomidine. Maybe Dr. McCobb, if you want to take this one, do you use it in pediatrics less than 12 weeks of age? And if not, um, if you don't use it in very young, what do you use say for a young two pound kitten? Sure. I just wanted to clarify, just in response to the previous question, that according to the ASV guidelines, IV catheters are really not required for spay neuter. And so I'm a weird outlier in that we do put them in a lot of our surgeries because there are students involved, but we don't put them in surgeries that veterinarians are doing. But we do have some cases where you may want IV access. So for a very pregnant dog or a large dog or bleeding or something like that. So what the guidelines say is that someone in the practice needs to have the capacity to place the IV catheter, which might be us. With regards to dexmedetomidine, I mean, yeah, that's a very interesting point. So we used to worry a lot about reversing ingredients in teeny tiny neonates or having problems with that. But I've noticed over time that the sort of the age at which we feel comfortable is creeping back earlier and earlier. So I know I was on a panel with Sheila Robertson a few years ago. And we were like, yeah, probably six weeks is the youngest we would use dexmedetomidine on. So certainly the 10-week, 12-week-old kittens and puppies, a lot of us feel really comfortable using that drug in those animals with good results. If they're younger than that, I tend to go with just an asapromazine opioid-based protocol, depending on how compromised they are, and an IV induction, but not doing, you know, too many of those. I think two pounds and up, you're probably going to be okay with your standard protocol. Yeah. Anyone else have some advice for the very young kitten? Dr. Katrib? Yeah, we, I standardly, we will spay and neuter, you know, kittens as young as six weeks and a pound and a half, as long as they have to be a really like robust pound and a half kitten. No, no signs of disease, not any of these little unthrifty guys. But in those animals, we have been using TTDEX um, successfully and we do, we, we do reverse it. I know there's, I've seen shelters and, and programs that maybe don't universally reverse, but I definitely do on any of those little guys. That's great. Dr. Scott, are you using dexmedetomidine in the very young? We are. So the youngest we go is eight weeks or two pounds currently, and we are not routinely reversing. <clears throat> Perfect. Yeah, that's interesting. The fact, do you reverse at the end? Do you not? I know there, people have their opinions either way. And there's, I think there's advantages and disadvantages to, to, to both techniques. All right. And then we'll go on as far as the current drug shortages, some have been hard to come by and that may impact your ability for effective standard multimodal anesthesia and analgesia. So can you chat a moment, maybe Dr. Katra will start with you. How has the current drug shortages affected you? Has it impacted the type of analgesia you're able to provide for your patients? 
Yeah, I am lucky in that it has not directly affected me yet, but certainly we're all hyper aware of it and, and planning for when that might be the case. I do think some strategies, it, it is shifting to some of the veterinary specific drugs. And two of all we were talking about is, is part of that standard cocktail. We were already and continue to use some compounded drugs like buprenorphine compounded. So sometimes that's a, an alternative option. And then some of the drugs that we use do have alternatives. So like metatomidine instead of dexmedetomidine. Again, I haven't had to go that route yet but it's certainly um, on my mind. And, and if we haven't yet explored things like local blocks, I think now is certainly the time to do it, just like we were talking about. Awesome. Dr. Scott, how are you facing our current drug shortages? Yeah, again, I've also been really fortunate that we have yet to see that in, in the practices that I manage. We do reach for buprenorphine suspended release. So we are using that medication as well. But we've been really fortunate. Fentanyl and hydro in the shelter, I haven't had any shortages there as well. Yeah, we've been doing fine. I have great reps that let me know too ahead of time, like stack up on this stuff. Opioid is your go-to for analgesia. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Scott? Yes, it's going to depend on the case and the, the pain management that I need. So if I have a mild to moderate pain management, I'll choose butorphanol. If I need something for more analgesia, then I'll use hydro. Yeah, so it's all case-based. Dr. Katrai, we'll go to you next. <laughs> Um, yeah, similar to what Dr. Scott said. So it just, it just depends on the case. And so I will oftentimes use that TTDAC induction protocol and then add on an additional opioid later. I have used both hydro and morphine, depending on what's more available in certain settings, and then buprenorphine for a lot of the, the milder cases. We have a question about recovery. And if you could explain your recovery, we talked a lot about anesthesia drugs and equipment. And Dr. Scott, what is your recovery protocol? It depends. Are we talking about shelter or private? So it's a little bit different. In private practice, we will do reversals and also it's an individualized recovery. So I have a technician that's there extubating, waiting for that animal to rise and, and be fully awake. Whereas in the shelter, I may have a beach one day or the next day I have volunteers that are helping in recovery. Again, we're not reversing in the shelter, so the recovery is a little bit different and it's all gonna be based on staffing as well. So there might be more indiv individualized recovery, whereas it could be 15 kittens waking up in the surgery suite. <laughs> Dr. Contrive, how about you? What does recovery look like in your shelter? Yeah, and in, in many other shelters that I work in, it is that sort of beach setting, whether that's the cats on a tabletop or it's truly a, a setup on the floor. And we often employ the bear hugger for warming. Um, and, it, and it typically is a, a small number of people, sometimes only one, recovering multiple animals at once. Recovery is a place where I, I feel really strongly that volunteers can really be such a huge help and where I really try to recruit them. Because we are trying to extend our staff further with those limited resources, um, you can still have some of that individual recovery. And no, they can't necessarily respond to a complication, but they can get a technician or a veterinarian that can really rapidly. We were just talking about recovery protocols and what is your recovery protocol in your practice for recovering your patients? In the Spanator clinic, we use a beach type protocol, like the Spanator Alliance protocol, where we just line them all up until they're ready to be back in their cages. We try to have them continually monitored, continually watched there on the floor because you can't fall off the floor. For the higher risk patients with more extensive surgery, they're a lot more likely to go back into their cage and maybe even stay on IV fluids for a few hours, depending on what's happening with them. In terms of reversal, we don't routinely reverse, but my students are really slow. The animals are usually 
probably not needing to be reversed. We certainly reverse them if they are trying to get in the carriers and they're sleepy, then we reverse. Perfect. And then we have a question. What does TTDEX stand for? Dr. Contrive, you want to let everyone know? And yeah. TTDEX can mean different things to different people. So what does TTDEX look like sure. for you? Yeah, so TTDEX for me is Tilazol, so Torb or Bupropanol, uh, and then Dexmedetomidine or Dexbomitor. Perfect. Dr. Scott, is that, and Dr. McCobb, same for you all? Yeah. Sometimes um, yeah, the T stands for something else, so you never know what drug it is. So it's always good to clarify. Thank you for having that question. And then someone asked that they had their, they lost their ability to get um, the buprenorphine SR. And so what is, is there a replacement option for buprenorphine SR? Dr. McCall. I have to admit that I don't have a lot of personal experience with buprenorphine SR because our pharmacists don't allow, to, don't allow us to order the compounded drugs in academic setting. I want it and everyone I talk to uses it. So I guess I would suggest trying a different compounding pharmacy because I think most people have been able to get it just fine. The other thing would be considering like what you're using it for because if it's just for spay neuter, a lot of those animals maybe don't need as much post-op analgesia as we think they do, especially if you're using a really preventative multimodal protocol from the get-go. So a little bit depends on why you need it or what you're using it for. All right, Dr. Katrab, do you have an a go-to buprenorphine product if you can't get SR? We do use it. I just Dr. McCobb suggested, and we haven't had an issue getting it from our compounding pharmacy. Are you intubating all your patients or using a mask or a supraglottic device such as the V-gel? Dr. Scott? We do not intubate, let me clarify, in the shelter, we do not intubate all of our patients. Our specials procedures will be intubated or high-risk cases will be intubated. And private practice, all of the animals are intubated in, or at my private practice. In the shelter setting, we are using masks and the masks are getting excelled and dried between each use. This is the number one question that we had when writing the Spanier guidelines. So if you do look at the document from 2016, it actually actually extensively discusses this. What I usually tell people is that it's not required in the Spanier setting. Dr. Scott described like if the surgeries are really quick, a lot of them can be done safely, particularly in cats without intubating them. If you are using a mask, you need to be aware that you're increasing the occupational exposure of waste anesthetic gas to your staff. So I'm hopeful that you're monitoring exposure to the staff. And then you just need to be aware of patients that should be intubated. So your brachycephalic dogs, your very pregnant patients, your very obese patients, even very obese cats. I've had a, a number of obese cats that don't do well when you put them on their back for a spay. There always needs to be somebody available who can intubate them and should the indication arise. In both of the primary settings where I'm at right now, we intubate everything except male cats. I have absolutely worked in settings where, where we use masks more, more than that. Essentially everything that we're saying, I think it very much you know, depends on, on the setting and the skill level of the people doing the intubating. So we don't cause more harm. If I have the technician staff that can intubate cats quickly and safely, then I like it. But it's uh, because I think we get better readings on our pulse oxes more than anything else. But it's absolutely not necessary depending on that setting. Dr. McCall, what is um, the policy for anesthesia in cats who break with your eyes? We have a question. At what point will you spare neuter these patients and does it affect your anesthetic protocol? Yeah, that's a great question. I think each clinic has to come up with their own policy. It's gonna it's gonna come down to a cost benefit analysis. So that's what the guidelines allow us to do. So if if this is our one shot and the animal has mild URI signs, we might go ahead. Now we always have to think about who we're exposing to those cats. At what point were they exposed? And all those kind of infectious control standpoints that that Dr. Katri brought up before. My the way I decide on an individual cat 
basis is based on the amount of nasal discharge. So I've personally lost a few cats with severe nasal discharge and where the endotracheal tube becomes clogged. And some of those cats actually we did post on them and they ended up having lungworms. So I'm very risk averse now in my setting, especially with the students. And if there's a copious discharge, that's a cat I'm going to want on antibiotics. And I'm luckily lucky enough that I can get that cat back later for first bay. That's how I do it. Dr. Scott? We have a robust foster program. I think I have about 700 cats in foster right now. So for us, mild disease, I would probably push through surgery, but anything more than just a mild serous discharge, we'd likely send them to foster for a couple of weeks to get healthier before going through spay-neuter. Is that Dr. Katribe? I fall somewhere, it depends on what setting I'm working in. So at Best Friends, we do have a more robust foster base. And so a lot of times, unless it's just very mild disease, we will do just like Dr. Scott said, and we'll push them back out to foster for a little bit. In the setting where I'm at right now, working out of Palm Valley Animal Society, we don't yet quite have quite as a robust program. And, and we know that one of the biggest factors in upper respiratory in shelter cats is how long they stay in the shelter and that stress. And so it's balancing for that patient. Is, is there going to be an increased anesthetic risk versus me getting them out of the shelter via spay neuter, getting them into a home and that'll get them and get them well faster. And so it's making that, that sort of decision on an individual basis and keeping that shelter flow and length of stay in mind. I have a question from someone who doesn't have access to inhalant anesthesia and they are um, asking for an opinion on the quad protocol, which from the question that looks like it's a kitty magic, which is the, the cocktail of an alpha-2, a dissociative, an opioid, and adding in midazolam. Yeah, anyone quad protocol is ketamine, metatomidine, and butorphanol. I love the quad protocol. I'm a little concerned if you don't have any inhalants, you want to make sure you at least have oxygen, and it definitely will improve your flexibility. But the quad protocol is really popular in the UK, so I'm guessing this is somebody from overseas, and a lot of our folks overseas don't have inhalant in their setting. Any other advice for anyone who does not have access to inhalant anesthesia? Dr. Scott? I have no experience with that. (laughs) Have you been in a situation where you have access to inhalants? I I have not yet worked in any of those settings. Even in the field clinics that I've done, we've had access to isofluorine. I I do know there are lots of, particularly, like I said, field programs that use it successfully. I just don't have any personal experience with it, unfortunately. I want to ask a couple kind of closing questions. And let's, Dr. Scott, can you tell us what is the most fulfilling part of what you do? Why you chose um, shelter medicine and what is the most fulfilling part? Honestly, I didn't choose shelter medicine. Shelter medicine chose me, and then I just fell in love. I was recruited to my first shelter, and I was going to be an internal medicine specialist, and then got into shelter and realized I can do that without all the extra years of residency. Sorry, (laughs) specialist. I can do internal medicine in the shelter, and for me, I think that is the most rewarding thing is really making a difference for my community and also getting to challenge myself and my colleagues in the shelter in terms of our skill because the shelter does that. Dr. Katrai, what is the most fulfilling aspect of your role? Yeah, similar to what Dr. Scott said, it's, it's getting to help people and pets that, that essentially have no other option, whether that's a pet in the shelter or trying to keep that pet in the home with the more and more access to care work that, that we're doing out of shelters or that I've done um, through other programs. Those definitely are some of the most fulfilling things is when we, we get to have a, a positive outcome for those people and pets that would not have otherwise been possible. And Dr. McCobb, I know you wear a couple of hats being an anesthesiologist working in the community practice shelter setting. What is the most fulfilling aspect for you? 
It's really goes back to the title of the session about bridging those gaps. So for me, it's really making sure that we're messaging to our students that the standard of care in community medicine is high. And there are ways that we can do really good anesthetic and surgical practice in our setting. And it's not like a less than, like it's alternative. And it is, we're able to provide a very high standard within the resource limited setting that we have and just giving the students the confidence that they can go out and work in this area and feel like they're not making compromises. And last question, how can the veterinary community best help local shelters? Dr. Scott, what can they do to help you the most? Yeah, I sit on the local VMA and what I recognize with my private practitioner colleagues is just a lack of knowledge of what we're doing in the shelter. And so I think the best way to bridge the gap is invite your private practitioners in to spend a day with you, help them understand really the quality of medicine that we're doing in the shelter and eliminate some of the misinformation that's out there. Yeah, I feel a lot of that same stuff. And so I, I do think the, the biggest thing that can happen is for us to, to talk more, to partner more, to collaborate more. I think especially as the, the sheltering landscape shift, um, we, we need more partnerships with private practices and with general practitioners. And there's so much you know, room for that to happen, but we have to approach it with that mutual respect and, and we have to start talking to each other more. And so I appreciate so much just this, the, this webinar and this chance to, to start to bridge or to continue to bridge that. How best can someone be accepted as a volunteer at a shelter, Dr. Katribe? Uh, I mean, it's reaching out. So I think a lot of shelters have pretty standard volunteer programs that are geared more toward people that want to come walk dogs or even volunteer in recovery in, in the shelter. And so it's reaching out directly and just saying, hey, I'm a veterinarian. I want to do more and I will never turn you down. So if you can <laughs> just float it up the chain so it gets the right person, we'll take all that. Dr. McCobb, how can local veterinary community help you, help your shelter setting? We asked our shelters what they most wanted from the RDVM population and they said come visit. So if you're not sure what's going on there and you're you have concerns, especially if you're seeing adopted animals into the community, come visit. Talk to the vets. We're all colleagues. We're all veterinarians. And so we do need to collaborate like Dr. Katrad said. Reach out and go visit. You can learn more about the anesthesia drugs that Drugs has available and also learn more about our shelter discount program that we offer nonprofit groups and support of all that you all do for homeless pets. So please visit us at www.jerox.com forward slash US. All right, so again, thank you all panelists. We have lots of resources available for you that encompasses a broad topic of anesthesia and analgesia. So please visit thinkanesthesia.education for a complete listing of all of our CE materials, for on-demand webinars, articles, and podcasts. And with that, I wanna thank everyone for their time and please have a wonderful day. 